All right, we're uh, still in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're actually still in verses 8 through 10. I promise you, last week I really thought we would look at verses 8 through 10, and today we'd be on verse 11. But um, in reading through it this week and getting ready, uh, verse 10 just jumps out as a really happy verse to me. Uh, There was just so many things going on there. We are God's workmanship and uh, created in Christ for good works, and God prepared them, you know, those kinds of things. So I thought we'd spend some time looking at those um, this morning. One of the joys, one one of the real joys of my job in preaching has been to preach the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Um, it is such a, a joy, especially to proclaim grace to folks who didn't think grace uh, w- was real, who, who just didn't understand grace. Um, and I, I, I get that. I grew up in a, in a church environment. I don't think anybody intended uh, that I pick up the message, but it's very easy to pick up the message of, of guilt, of not doing enough, of always failing at righteousness. Uh, you, you can sort of pick that up in the religiosity uh, of church life. Again, I don't think anybody meant to, you know, sit down and teach me, you know, you need to feel guilty all the time. Uh, there, there are probably some churches that may do this. I mean, there's enough of them that statistically there's a possibility. Um, there are some uh, theological systems and denominations that highlight the necessity of being doing stuff all the time. And so um, one of the joys I've had over the years is meeting people who came out of a guilt-based sort of background in the Christian faith and felt like, you know, no matter what they did, God was still a little bit upset at them. They were never doing quite enough. And what a joy it has been to share the doctrine of grace, that it is all God's doing, that God in Christ Jesus saves us, that we are saved by grace through faith and then for works, but we are saved by the grace of God. And uh, it, a lot of times you'll just see somebody's life open up and they'll just get a sense of, of liberty and freedom and uh, uh, just a sense of joy that this is the God that we worship. And so that's been a great joy of mine is to share grace uh, from the pulpit week after week. At least I've tried to share grace, which uh, sort of makes it odd that I'm kind of excited about sharing works uh, this morning. Um, but it, it is because that when the Bible talks about the things that we do, it always talks about grace first, and grace first and foremost of all. And the works proceed out of the grace. Now, when you think about it, the grace is sort of God's way of saying, here's how we're going to have a vacation together. You don't think so? You know, if God said, you know, let's all go to Disney World, we all go to Disney World. You get up in the morning, what do you say? Well, we're here by grace. Let's just sack out, as some people have done today. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you get up in the morning, you say, we're Disney World. We're here by grace. What do you want to do? You know, what, where do you want to go? What, what do you want to experience? And when we talk about uh, being saved for works, what we're saying is having been saved by grace through faith, 
now here's what we get to do in the presence of the Father uh, for the glory of God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we get to do to, to enjoy God and to praise God. And so uh, in talking about uh, works and where they fit into the salvation, it's, it's a joyful thing and a joyous thing. So I hope, I hope you sort of pick that up uh, as we look at uh, verse 10 a little bit later on. But uh, for right now, I want for us to read verses uh, 8 through 10 together to make sure we get a running start through grace before we get to uh, the works that God has prepared for us. So we start in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, how marvelous it is to know that before time began, you are God. And that before clocks were ever set into motion, before calendars were ever kept, before schedules were ever made, you are the sovereign Lord God over time. And that you're sovereign over our days, in our lives, in our time. And we just marvel at the way in which you give us productive things to do that will bring you honor and glory. Father, we confess that too many times we've treated time as a commodity that belongs to us. We have talked about um, making our own time schedules. And Father, we have filled and cluttered our, our calendars with things that just don't matter. But how thankful we are that, again, by grace, you call us out of our willfulness and out of our self-directedness. And you call us again in moments like this to remember that you are the author, the creator, and the Lord over our time. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us to appreciate the time you have given to us. Let us return it to you filled with your praise and your glory in our lives. Father, help us to be good stewards of the time that you have given to us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you love baseball and you're put on the team and the coach comes and says, I'm putting you in the game, what do you say? You say, Coach, I don't think so. I've got other plans. I want to be on the team. I really appreciate it. But after all, that's not my thing. No, if you love baseball and the coach says, I'm putting you in, you grab the glove and you're out in the field before the coach gets to tell you that you're only the pitch hitter and you're not in the field. But, you know, you're you're just so excited about going out because being put in the game, told that you will get to function as a baseball player is what you want to do because you love the game. You see the analogy when you are told by Christ, I'm putting you in the game. I'm going to put you into the game, and you're going to stand and bear witness for me. You're going to give people a sense of what I'm like by the way you behave. I'm putting you in the game for my sake. If you love Jesus, the answer is, great, put me in, coach. I want to play. Which, you know, sort of um, asks us to think about why is it we get this understanding of our works in the kingdom of God so backwards? 
You know, the first thing we do is we get it backwards with respect to what comes first. And we think, well, first I've got to get in the game. I've got to sneak onto the field. I've got to play really, really well. And then maybe the coach will see me and maybe he'll put me on the team. And then maybe I'll, I'll get to play baseball. No, in point of fact, the coach just puts you on the team out of his grace. This is the analogy we're dealing with. Okay. We don't work in order to get into the kingdom. We don't try to convince God that we're good enough or that we're bright enough or that somehow we're worthy of it. God puts us on the team because of his grace. And if you love him, you'll want to play the game. And that's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, you know, uh, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. When God saves us, he intends to put us into the game. When Jesus was talking to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, look, I want you to go out and make disciples, bring them to a saving faith, baptize them in what baptism represents, having come to a personal saving faith in, in the Savior, in Jesus Christ, baptize them, name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then he said, and I want you to command them or, or to teach them to keep all that I have commanded. He says, I want you to show them how to play the game. I want you to show them how to be a useful member of the team. I want you, you, you to teach them how they can experience the joy of their salvation being worked out in them day by day by day. Jesus himself said, you know, there's something that's going to happen when God's grace gets a hold of you by faith. Now, behind all of our our thoughts on, on these verses throughout the whole thing has been a guy by the name of James. Uh, James uh, was a, a brother to Jesus, part of the, Jesus' earthly family, and uh, the evidence we have is that he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem uh, very soon after uh, the, um, the church got rolling. And so he was a very prominent person, most likely the author of the book of James, and uh, one of the things James says in his letter is, faith without works is dead. And he says, so you see that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. It's almost like James forgot to read Paul. <laughs> you know, James uh, it, you know, it seems to have a different perspective on that. You might be aware of this. Martin Luther, for whom uh, the gospel liberated him from useless religious works, I mean, one of the things that really tore Luther up was the idea that he could never make God happy. He joined a monastery, started teaching Bible. He, he was reading, he was confessing, he was praying. He was doing all these things, and he just felt like, I can't make God happy. And one day it occurred to him, no, I'm saved by the grace of God through faith, not by my works. And so um, Luther, one of the things that set him free was this, this whole thing that he didn't have to do uh, all these these works. And Luther is the one who said of the book of James, he says, you know, James is a right strawy epistle. It's an epistle of straw is, is what he said about that. And what he meant by it was, I don't see a lot of this grace there. And I don't see a lot of, of salvation by grace alone and all that in the book of James. What I want to suggest to you is in point of fact, it's right there in the very passage we're looking at and, uh, and, and that we're thinking about in the letter to James. Uh, if you want to just glance at it, it's found in James chapter 2. But what James says is, he says, look, let's get this notion of what faith is and how faith works in our lives straight, okay, guys? He said, because if you're going to talk to me about faith, faith does something to you. 
When God's grace comes into your life, it transforms you. It makes you different. And that's what faith connects you uh, to, that kind of grace of God. And he said it this way. He said, look, if a brother or a sister doesn't have enough clothing, you know, has, has you know, just shoddy clothes, and, and, and you know that they don't have enough food and they're hungry all the time. So, and so, and by the way, look at that closely. If you're looking at it, look at it closely. He says, if a brother or sister, he's talking about if a fellow believer in Christ. In a moment, he's going to talk about uh, saying, you know, peace be with you and all that business. Um, almost like he's referring to the welcome time in uh, the worship service where they went around shaking hands and hugging necks. And, uh, um, uh, you know, in, in the course of that, God lays upon your heart, here's somebody who's in need, in real need, a brother or sister, part of the family of God. That's, that's really the, the, the thing that he's talking about. So he says, uh, so you see somebody and they're a brother, they're sister in Christ, and God lays it on your heart. You know that they're, and that they're cold and you know that they're hungry. And by the way, you know that you have the resources to match that need and to meet that need. And then if you say to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. In other words, you write them off. You just brush them off as a brother or sister in Christ. James says, if, you, if, that's, if that's what faith is, he says, what good is it? What has it done? Not that, just that it hasn't helped the person in need, but you have not lived the glory of grace in your life. You haven't really uh, just invested your life into the glory of what God would do in your life for whatever reason. So James talks about a faith that is nothing but words. You know, a faith that just talks a really good talk, but it never has any actual consequence in daily life. James talked about another kind of faith. He says, you know, the other way you think about faith is you're thinking about it like it's an intellectual thing. It's just a matter of believing certain things and having a a kind of knowledge of a theological system, and maybe that's what faith is. James said, you believe in God, don't you? He says, you do well. The demons in hell believe in God. By the way, the demons in hell, when they believe in God, they have the good sense to tremble when they do. You don't even tremble. Not only do the demons in hell believe in God, they know more about God than you do because they've been around longer. And they've experienced some of that. But you believe in God, the demons in hell believe in God, they don't have any consequence going on in in what they're doing and how they're behaving, and neither do you. What good is that kind of faith? So what James is really doing is he's trying to get us to see what faith is really about. It's not about just words saying the right things. It's not just about knowing stuff. Some of us like theological systems. I, I think of myself as a systematic theologian. Um, if you ever uh, really need to you know, get a good night's rest, just call me up before bedtime and ask me, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. But uh, uh, you know, systematic theology is just a way of trying to believe the whole Bible all at once. But uh, knowing a system and believing a system is not faith. That's not the saving faith that the Bible talks about. James says, you know, you, you can misunderstand faith. You think it's just words. You think it's just, um, you know, a matter of knowing certain stuff. He says, let me tell you what faith really is. He said, look at Abraham. Look at the example of Abraham. If you look at Abraham, God came and said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your firstborn son, your only son, actually, Isaac. I want you to sacrifice him. Now, this doesn't make any sense on many, many levels. We won't go into the intricacies of it, but ultimately what Abraham says is, God, you're God. You told me 
to sacrifice this son that you gave to me. Doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you know the story. He took Isaac, his son, to the mountain and was there about to sacrifice his son. God stayed his hand and supplied a substitute in a beautiful picture of how Christ is our substitute for our sins, and he dies the death that we deserve. But James says Abraham was willing. He had such trust in God that he was willing to let it be translated into action, into obedience to God's commandment. He says that's what faith is. And then James says, and that's what it means when it says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Same verse that Paul quotes. So Paul and James aren't um, disagreeing with each other. It's just that James needs to highlight that faith has a consequence in our lives by the grace of God. And Paul is highlighting that it's all God's doing. Which is why it's really fun to come now to Ephesians 2.10 where Paul talks about works in the Christian life. By the way, he's going to talk a lot about works in Christian life as we go through the book of Ephesians. You start at chapter 4 and the rest of the book is nothing but, here's what you do, folks. You know, if you want your faith to be alive, here's what you do in the church. Here's what you do in the fellowship. Here's what you do in your marriage. Here's what you do with your children. Here's what you do with your your employment situation. Here's what you do when you're fighting the good fight out in the world. See, the rest of Ephesians, it it will, will talk about, here's what you do. Here's what faith means in your life. So he's going to talk about those things, but he gets grace in front of us first because it's by grace through faith for good works. See, Paul says, we are God's workmanship. See, the works that we're called to do, the things we're called to do, it begins with what God has already done. We are God's workmanship. Uh, I mentioned last week that the word for workmanship is the uh, word from which we get our word poem. And in uh, the Greek, it means something that is built or constructed, and uh, you could almost say a masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. You can see it, can't you? (laughs) I can see it. I see God's masterpiece. See, it begins because God is the creator. He's the creator of the universe. You you go back into Genesis chapters uh, 1 and 2, and you see the the narratives there of, of what it means to say that God created the heavens and the earth. And what we see there, if nothing else, is we see that God is a God who who put everything in its place and its order, gave it a purpose, designed the universe perfectly so that we would see the glory of God in it. In fact, the world was created so that as we look at the things God has made, we should see his infinite power and his deity. We should see his sovereignty, and we should see that he is divine and he is worthy of our worship and our praise. That's what the universe is designed to do do is to get us to worship God. Everything everyone created is designed to point us to the glory of God. By the way, don't think that I'm the only one who thinks this. Um, There's also a guy by the name of Francis Collins. Some of you have heard of him, but Francis Collins is the director of the National Institutes of Health. He was, um, prior to that, he was the the director of the Human Genome Project. This was a project that uh, mapped out the genetic code of human beings, and uh, his group uh, came uh, to, uh, to, to uh, uh, map out every gene in the, the human uh, DNA system, uh, if you will. He's credited with discovering the connection between genetics and, and, and many diseases. Um, this guy's one bright fellow. He started life as an atheist. 
And then he became an agnostic. Then he became a believer in God. And then he became a believer in God the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what took him along that journey was looking at the beauty of the world through the eyes of a scientist. As he saw the intricacies of how, just the, the DNA code, you, you, you look at that and you say, now, now um, every human being is built using only four letters of the alphabet, four protein molecules. Think of it this way. Using only four letters of the alphabet, he writes enough words to tell us how to build a human being. This is an amazing thing. And the same system works for, for, for every living thing. Francis Collins looked at that and says, you know, pretty smart fellow thought that up. Yeah. There is a God who thought that up. Now, his argument is a little more elaborate than that, but basically it was this. He looked at the world, and he saw the Creator and gives him glory for it. See, that's why creation is here. That's why uh, we were created. So God created us for his glory, and with Adam and Eve, he actually gave them something to do. He gave them work to do. He gave them a garden to tend. Now, um, this is how you know there's something called original sin, because I hate gardening, and evidently I'm out of step with the will of God. But anyway, uh, but, uh, you know, the only thing lawnmowers are good for is making me feel guilty that my neighbor is mowing his lawn and I'm not. But, but other than that, I don't see the point. But, but Adam and Eve were, were given something to do, something productive. And, it, you know, it's, it's not like they were earning God's favor. You know, it's not like they were saying, hey, God, did you see how well I manicured the lawn and I weeded the flower bed and I, and, you know, and I, I mulched everything and whatever else gardeners do, I did all that stuff. Uh, aren't you pleased with me, God? No, God was already pleased with him. God had created him. He was in the garden and innocence without sin. And he and Adam and Eve, you know, they were tending to the garden for the glory of God. They were doing things in response to the glory of God in their lives. Here's what happened. They sinned against God. They said, God, we don't want you to be God anymore. Uh, you've, you've designed this tree, and you told us not to eat of it, not to touch it. Okay, fine. Uh, we did. And then they realized that they were broken and alienated from God. And that's, that's where sin enters into the world. Now, one of the things that God said to Adam, he said, Adam, from now on, you're not going to work for joy. You're going to work for a living. Maybe I just described your life you know, I hope not, but, you know, for, for a lot of guys, this, this is where we are. Not we, but you guys. <laughs> but, uh, you know, is we, we work for a living rather than working for the joy of being productive. Now, if you can find a job where you're joyful and productive, it uh, means one of two things. One, uh, you, you found a great job, or more likely, you found a great God who gave you that job, and you're working for his glory. But one of the things that, that God said to Adam he says, from now on, because of the sin in your life, what's going to happen is you're going to work for a living, you're going to till the soil, but you're going to have thorns and thistles. It's just not going to cooperate. And you're going to survive and eat the bread that you get. It's all going to come off the sweat of your brow. You're, you're just going to have to work that hard because you've broken this creation. Now, the great thing, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ... If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You know, look at it this way. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. And the new things are the things that God has designed. As a new creation, God has created us for his glory. He has created us to see him and his glory and all the creation around us. He has created us so that um, we would uh, live 
doing the things that please him because it brings us joy to know we are pleasing to the Father uh, in response to his grace. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. So Paul says we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship just because we are created by God, but we are specifically his workmanship because by the grace of God, he has made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now notice where the emphasis for that is. We are his workmanship. In verse 9, he just got through saying, he said, look, nobody can boast. This is a gift of God. It's not our works. We can't boast about it. We can't tell people how wonderful we are, what achievements we made, or, or how smart we were. This is all God's doing. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. He says, because we are God's workmanship. So when we think about what do we do, you know, the works that we do as a Christian, it begins, first of all, with what God has done in us and for us in Christ. The grace comes first, by grace, through faith, and then for these works. And the works that God has in store for us are works in Christ Jesus. It says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, that's why Jesus spent so much time talking to people about things they should and should not do. It's not like he was trying to sneak works in the back door or or turn this, this, this marvelous grace of God into just another religious expression. He was simply saying, when grace gets a hold of you, here's what's going to happen in your life. For example, in um, the Sermon on the Mount, you remember that? It was in all the papers. Uh, But in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, right in the middle of it, Jesus starts talking about being religious. It's, this is chapter 6. He's talking about uh, the, the acts of piety, the things we do because we're religious people. And uh, the Jews knew what he was talking about. It was basically uh, alms and uh, prayer and fasting. And so Jesus said, look, when you give alms, when you give something to the poor, he says, don't make a big deal out of it. Don't go around telling everybody what you've done. Don't let it slip in the conversation just so that you can do one of those humble brag kinds of things. Oh, I'm so glad that God has blessed me to be able to give so much, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Now, maybe that's true, but you don't slip it into the conversation with your brother-in-law because you're trying to impress him. Uh, but Jesus said, don't make a big noise about it. Here's what you do. You give it quietly. You give it so that nobody ever notices. And I tell you what, if your works are not to be seen by people, but rather to be seen by God, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, when you pray, this seems like a really good thing to do. Isn't this a work that God likes? He says, but when you pray, don't pray these big, loud, long prayers and stand in the marketplace. You know? He says, but when you pray, go into a closet. Go into, into some place where nobody is, is around, and you pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, when you're fasting, don't make a big show of it. You know, walk around like, oh, man, I'm really hungry. By the way, I am really hungry, but, but not because I've been fasting. <laughs> but you don't go around, man, I'm really hungry, and, you know, you, you walk around, oh, I'm so weak, I'm hungry, I can't comb my hair, and I can't wash my face. He says, no, when you fast, wash your face, put on some good clothes, don't let anybody know you're fasting. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What does Jesus say? He said, these things that you do, make sure that they are done for the glory of God between you and God, and that they're not done to be noticed by other people. 
Now, there's something to be said for witness and things like that. It has its place. He said, but the, the motivation is to glorify God and to thank and to praise him by the way that you behave and the way that you act. See, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what Paul was getting at in Romans 12. You remember a little while ago, uh, we talked about being a Romans 12 Christian, and uh, we started off that it's by the mercies of God. You can translate that by the grace of God, I beg you. That's why we did chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. That was the grace part, so that we could get to the Romans 12, the works and the behavior part, and then Paul talks in 12, 13, 14, 15 about about what it means to live out uh, the grace of God by faith. But in Romans 12, Paul says, look, by the mercy of God, I'm begging you. I'm really, I'm begging you. Present your lives as a living sacrifice to God. What does he say? I'm begging you to worship God in everything you do. To worship God in everything you do. See, this is the difference between I have to and I get to. I have to worship God. I have to go to church. I have to sing hymns. I get to listen to the sermon. I have to sing the final song. See, when you love the Father, it's not I have to, it's I get to. It's not, you know, a burdensome thing that, oh, no, you know, God is making me do something that I absolutely... No, it's God is allowing me the privilege and the joy to reflect who Jesus Christ is in my behavior. See, the works follow from the grace of God. You know, it's, it's a part of walking in the Spirit, the life in the Spirit. There, in, when we were looking at Galatians chapter 5, you remember Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, the outcome, the result of the Holy Spirit being in the life of the believer will result in certain things, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Nobody's ever going to pass a law against those things. So this, he's, he's talking about this, this is what grace does in your life. It makes you want to glorify the Father and to honor him and to praise him in the things that you do. So Paul says we are God's workmanship, and you know, it's God who's doing this, and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, but then he says, which God prepared beforehand. Now, this is an interesting thing. I think it's interesting. You're going to think it's interesting too. Think of all the stuff Paul's talked about that God does beforehand. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Before we were, uh, you know, even born, God chose us to be his children, to belong to him. Not only that, God chose us and predestined us. Remember what he says there in Romans 8. He said, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, to look like Jesus. God decided a long time ago that that's what he wants us to do and to be. What are the works that God has prepared beforehand for us? They are the works of looking like Jesus. That's what we are called to do, is to look a lot like Jesus. I mean, this is, a, this is actually a really uh, a wonderful privilege that God says, you know, as I'm trying to explain to the world who I am through my son, I'm going to use you to look like my son so people will know who I am. That's a privilege that is given to us. God says, I'm going to put you in the game by his grace. And if you love him, you'll love living and looking like him. 
You see, so God has prepared these before, and he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son so that in our lives God would receive the glory through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Now, that puts a whole different slant on on works. The idea of works as, as religious duties that you have to do or else God will, you know, sort of give you the back of his hand. You know, religion, by definition, is all about what you do. It's about works. Um, and, you know, the religion of, of prayer wheels and, and bells and candles and, and rituals and, you know, all those ki- incense, all those kinds of things. But the religion or the, the, um, uh, the relationship of grace through faith with the Father is a relationship of loving response. And so when we hear that the Bible is good for correction and reproof, that's not bad news. That's like, God loves me enough to tell me I can do better and, and that, that he'll give me the resources to do it. He'll give me that instruction in righteousness. He'll grow me up. You know, this is what God is doing. It's not a burdensome thing to find out that God would like to spend time with us in prayer. It's not a burden to understand that, that God really wants to um, take our lives and use them for his glory. This, this, this is a joyful thing for us. These words are prepared beforehand. We don't have to figure them out. You remember uh, the prophet Micah, uh, the, the Old Testament guy? And uh, in the sixth chapter, sixth verse, uh, Micah asks a question. He says, you know, what does God really want out of us? What does God really want out of us? And so then he says, well, it must be something religious, right? It's got to be something religious. He says, so, so maybe I'll sacrifice to God a one-year-old calf. That seems like a pretty good thing. I mean, it's, um, you, you gotta, it's, it's like a really nice sacrifice to make to God. Maybe that'll make God happy. And you can almost see Micah between the lines saying, no, I don't think that'll make God happy because he's an internal, infinite God, and this is one little calf. So he goes on to say, well, maybe the rams, maybe 10,000 rams would make him happy. I'll just bring every ram I can find and, and give it to him. And if he doesn't like a Dodge ram, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> Actually, you have to understand your terms. But uh, he says, I'll bring him all these rams, 10,000 rams. Maybe that'll be enough. And you can almost see Micah saying, well, but if I did that, that's not going to be enough because, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills, they're all his anyway. I know. Micah says, how about if I offer my firstborn son, you know, life out of my life. Maybe I'll, I'll offer my firstborn to God. Maybe that'll make him happy. You just sense the desperation Micah has. You know, what would make God happy? Is there anything I can do that will make God happy? And God responds and says, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you what makes me happy. You know, here's what I've, I've, I've told you already, fellow. What makes me happy? I want you to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. It's just that simple. I want you to do justice and know the the righteousness and the justice of God, and we know that that comes to us in Christ Jesus. I I want you to love mercy, and we know that mercy comes to us through Christ Jesus. He said, I want you to walk humbly with your God, and we know our relationship with the Father comes through Christ Jesus. See, you don't have to figure out what God wants you to do. He has told you what he wants. He wants you to look like Jesus and to act like Jesus and to give Jesus glory, honor, and praise. So God has prepared that work for us to be like Jesus 
that we should walk in those works, that we should walk in them. Uh, Peter put it this way. He says, Christ has suffered and given us an example that we should walk in his steps, in the footprints of Jesus. So the, the, the wonderful thing about the works that we're called to do is that we don't have to think up what they are. We don't have to uh, manufacture the energy to do them. God gives us the Holy Spirit that we might be obedient. He gives us the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we would know. He has given us his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be a new creation and made able to live lives pleasing to the Father. And because it's all grace, here's, here's the deal. We don't get discouraged when we stumble. We don't get discouraged when we don't quite measure up. We, we don't just throw in the towel because, you know, I haven't quite, quite managed to get there. Because in point of fact, uh, God knows that anyway. And his grace is sufficient for all our needs. You know, and, you know, when you love somebody and they mess up a little bit, you just say, well, we'll do better next time, and we keep working on that. We don't accept the failure, but we, we live and move beyond it. It, it. Now that you know this, you can have courage and boldness to go out and live for Christ because it's the Holy Spirit working in you to accomplish this end. And so this coming week, um, I, I just want you to think about how you can live and look like Jesus uh, in your life, how you can look more and more like Jesus, because that's what God has called us to do. And it's a great, great privilege and a joy for us to be used as God's workmanship for good works in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the way you love us, for the way your grace transforms us, Thank you so much, Father, that you allow us the great privilege of living and working for you in our lives. Pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our understanding, open our eyes to just see the opportunities that are ours to be found as obedient stewards in your kingdom, those who have been enabled to make Jesus known among the nations. Father, we give you all the praise.